have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we're going to look this morning at verses 12 through verse 22. Matthew 21, verses 12 through verse 22. Well, what I want us to do this morning is just read this text, and then we'll work our way through it. So let's just begin in verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they became indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus is um, quoting there from Psalm chapter 8, a messianic psalm of David, where he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have declared your splendor among the heavens and out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength to make the enemy and the vengeful cease. Jesus is taking that psalm that speaks of God and he applies it to himself. That's the height of blasphemy if you're not God. And yet Jesus is God. And he's saying, in essence, this is my house and these children are doing what you should be doing and that is praising the God who owns the house and so in verse 17 and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there now in the morning when he was returning to the city he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only and he said to it no longer shall there be any fruit from you and at once the fig tree withered Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to to bless the study of your word this morning. God, I pray that the study of your word this morning wouldn't simply be the accrual of more information, but this would be about life transformation. God, we are asking you this morning to move and to work in our own hearts and in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. God, do business in us that we might fulfill your purposes in this world and we might not know your wrath and your judgment. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this text, the, um, the anger of Christ in this passage is, is quite alarming. In fact, uh, this is probably one of the most well-known of all the stories of Christ in the Gospels, apart from the crucifixion and the resurrection, simply because it's odd. It sticks out. This is, uh, this is not the, the typical Jesus that we think of when we think of Christ. In fact, as I was Looking back through the Gospels, I don't believe anywhere else in the life of Christ do we see this kind of anger from Christ. This is, 
This is extreme. I mean, you can imagine Jesus coming to a room and, and throwing tables and throwing chairs and running out people. Mark's gospel tells us that there were some folks that, that were using it as kind of a shortcut just to get to another place of business. And, and Jesus shuts it down. He completely stops it all. And if you know uh, the gospel of John, you know that this is not the first time this has happened. John includes a cleansing of the temple. In John chapter 2, there's a lot of debate. Is there two temple cleansing or is there one? I believe that there's two. There's one on the front end of Jesus' ministry that we see in in John's gospel, and then in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see one on the tail end of Jesus' ministry. But if you'll remember John's gospel, not only does he throw the tables over and, and throw the chairs, but he fashions a whip of cords. Can you imagine this? Jesus fashioning a whip of cords and running out the animals and stopping business in the court of Gentiles and shutting it all down. I mean, this is not the the picture of Christ that we like to picture in our minds. We want the soft Jesus. We like the Jesus who rides in on a donkey. We like the the Jesus who welcomes children up into his arms. And uh, quite frankly, if it were anybody else, we would think it was a person acting in a sinful way. I mean, if I were coming to a room and start throwing over tables this week, you would think I'd lost control and I wasn't acting in the spirit. But this is Jesus, and he is perfect. And he is God. And what we're seeing here is is not inconsistent with his humility. It's a good reminder that the meekness of God does not mean weakness. And that there is a time and a place for what we would call righteous indignation. You remember Paul said to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. He says there's going to be a time and a place to be angry. The danger comes when we allow our anger to control us and to, uh, to do something that's contrary to the word of God or to act in a way that's contrary to God's character. But listen, we as Christians, when it comes to the heart of God, when it comes to the will of God, when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to protecting his people, we should be as strong as steel and as bold as lions and sometimes to demonstrate a righteous indignation in a way that honors God. I mean, I'm afraid that far too often in far too many places we're producing kind of a milquetoast Christianity that never has any backbone to step up at certain times in certain places and say, that's not right. And we're not going to do that. And so make no mistake about it, Jesus is not losing control here. In fact, I believe that what Jesus is doing is very deliberate and in fact premeditated. And you got to remember as you read these things, you would do well to go and to look at Mark's gospel and Mark 11 and Luke 19. And you got to kind of put all the gospel stories to get the fullness of the story. But you remember in Mark's gospel, he goes into the temple, Palm Sunday, goes into the temple and he looks around. And you can only imagine what he saw, probably much like he's seen on this day. But it said it was late in the day and he, he couldn't do business. So he goes back home. He goes back to Bethany and he comes back the next day and then he cleanses the temple. In other words, he slept on it. I think Jesus goes into the temple the first day on Palm Sunday and realizes there's some business I got to do here. And yet there's no time. He goes home. He sleeps on it. And I have to believe As he did in the rest of his life, he communed with the Father and talked with God about what he was going to do the next day when he entered back into the temple. 
So make no mistake about it. I think sometimes we picture this as kind of a spur of the moment deal that he suddenly sees something that catches his attention and then he reacts to it in a certain fashion. No, I think this was a part of God's perfect plan and his perfect will. Jesus is, is operating, operating in perfect accordance with God's will. In fact, I think the cursing of the fig tree is another indication that this is not just a spur-of-the-moment deal. In Mark's gospel, the cursing of the fig tree is a two-part story. That he goes into the, uh, uh, As he's going into the temple, he sees uh, the fig tree and he curses it. And then he cleanses the temple. And then the next day, as he's walking back by the fig tree, the disciples ask about the fig tree and he gives a discussion of it. In other words, you have the fig tree on the front end and then you've got the cleansing of the temple and then you've got the fig tree on the tail end. And so it kind of sandwiches. And what is the message of the fig tree? It's that Jesus is condemning Israel because they've not done what he told them to do. And so deliberately, he uses the fig tree as an object lesson to clarify what he's doing in the cleansing of the temple. And so it's a deliberate action on the part of Christ. He's demonstrating a righteous indignation towards sin. And I think we'd all agree if we're here this morning and Uh, All of us would agree that we don't ever want to come close to seeing this kind of response from Christ in our life. I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, I thought, I I don't want to come anywhere close to doing anything that would cause Jesus to get this kind of angry towards me or anything that I was doing. In fact, I thought of Jesus coming back to Lenexa Baptist Church. I hope he wouldn't come in and start throwing tables around. And we don't want this kind of response from Jesus. And so we would, do, we would do really well to ask, what is it about the actions of these religious leaders that drew out of Jesus this kind of response? Because we don't want this. And uh, I think if we answer this question, if we find out what brought this response out of Jesus, we'll really get to the heart of God. Because you really want to know a person's heart, find out what really makes them mad. When you find out what makes a person really mad, you really get to the heart of that person. And so if we find out what drew this kind of response out of Christ, I think we'll find out what Christ is really passionate about. And we would do well to heed the warning that Jesus gives here to Israel. So what is the explanation? Well, I think Jesus gave us the explanation. It's found in verse 13. Why did Jesus get this kind of angry? Verse 13, and he said to them, is it written? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. Now, my Bible has that phrase, my house shall be called a house of prayer, in all caps. I mean, it's an Old Testament quotation. And the quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And I really spent some time there this week wanting to discern what is it about this that drew out of Christ this kind of anger. When you go back and you read Isaiah 56, in Isaiah 56, God is reminding his people, he's reminding Israel that the the foreigner, that the non-Jew, the Gentile, people like you and me that can't trace our lineage back to Abraham, he's saying that the The non-Jew that really has a heart to truly seek me, to know me, will always have a place in my house. Isn't that good to know this morning that even in the Old Testament, all the way back to the very beginning, even though God created this nation, Israel, to display his glory, he's always had a heart for the nations. And he's always had a place for you and me. And he has said from the very beginning that these people, these non-Jews, even them, they will have a place in my house Maybe you've had a party or a gathering at your home and and you've invited a certain group of people and somebody came to you and said, why'd you invite that person? I don't really want that person to come. I don't really want them to be there. And maybe you responded, well, it's not your house. It's my house. (laughs) 
and I'll invite whoever I want to invite to my house. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come, but I'm welcoming them into my house. Well, what God is doing in Isaiah 56 is he's telling Israel, I have a heart for the nations, and they'll always be welcomed into my house. That God's original intention for Israel was that they were intended to be evangelistic. That God sets apart this nation as holy unto himself and he gives them his word and he gives them his promises. But they were blessed not just so that they could be blessed. They were blessed to be a blessing to the nations. That the idea was that they will walk with me. They will know my favor. They will know my blessing. And the rest of the world will hear about these people and they will so want to be a part of them that they'll come and they'll seek after the one true God that's blessed them. That was his heart. In fact, when we're talking about the temple that that, that we are here, at the dedication of the temple, you really want to know the heart of something. Go back to its original formation, and we remember there's a tabernacle, but in the permanent dwelling place that Solomon builds, as Solomon is dedicating the the, the, the temple, listen to these words. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 8. Jot this reference down and go back and read it. It's beautiful. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, this is what it says. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, when he comes from a faraway country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, arms. When, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you and do uh, as do your, your people Israel, and that they may know that this house, house which I have built is called by your name. Again, here he's saying that Israel is to be a group of people that in this house there's a place for the non-Jew and there to be a people that displays the glory of God as they follow God and they're obedient to him. And the the non-Jew, the foreigner of the nations, hears about this and they'll come. And Solomon says they'll have a place in this temple. They'll have a place in God's house where they can have fellowship with God and pray to God. And Solomon even prays, God, hear their prayers. Welcome them into fellowship with you. That's the heart of the God we serve. The heart of the God we serve is that anybody, anybody, and this was his heart from the very beginning, that anybody that has a true heart to seek after God, to know God, would have a place in his house. And then you go back to Matthew 21. And you see the Jewish leadership doing business. And they're doing business in a place that was known as the court of the Gentiles. I mean, the Gentiles, people like you and me, can't trace our lineage back to Israel. There would have been one little place out on the far corner. But we could come. God set aside a place just for the nations. That as Israel fulfilled their purpose to make the glory of God known to the nations, as people like you and me, as we came, there would be a place for us. And we could have fellowship with God. And we could pray to God. And that was our place, the court of the Gentiles. And, and now the Jewish leadership has taken this one place that's dedicated to the evangelistic mission and heart of God. And they have turned it into a place of profiteering. What they were doing there is, is you would bring your animals for sacrifice. But when you would bring an animal for sacrifice, you'd have to have a priest examine that animal. 
And oftentimes the priests had gotten to a place where they could always find something wrong with your sacrifice and they would force you to have to buy from their pre-approved sacrifices and they charged an amazing amount for these sacrifices. It got to the point that people wouldn't even bring their sacrifices anymore because they thought, and then I get charged on both ends. I lose my own sacrifice and then I get upcharged for the one that they sell me. And then... When you came to the temple, you had to pay a temple tax and you had to use a certain coinage, couldn't bring Gentile money into God's house. So what you would have to do is you would exchange your money for temple coinage and they charged a high exchange rate. Do you see what they've done? They've taken something that was to be dedicated to the evangelistic purpose of God and they had profaned it as making it a place to profiteer off God's people. And in light of that, it brings out an anger in Jesus that we don't ever see. Why? They experienced, listen to me, they experienced the wrath of God because they missed the heart of God. They experienced the wrath of God. This wasn't just about making money. It was was about profaning the purpose of God and turning it around for their own personal benefit. They were more concerned about their money than they were the mission of God and they experienced his wrath. And we would do well to heed the warning that God gives to the nation of Israel here. You know, the very last book of the Bible, Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. It's the last word of God before you have a 400-year period of intertestamental period where where God kinds of signs off and we don't hear a word from God. But the last word of God in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 1, this is not the first time that the nation has profaned the temple. Back from its very beginning with uh, Abihu a, a Nabad and, and, and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the very, the very first, they were offering the wrong incense and God consumed them. And you go to the sons of Eli who were, again, kind of profiteering. They were taking temple sacrifices and using them for their own benefit. And they experienced the wrath of God through the Philistines for 1,500 years with very momentary periods where they would really use the temple for the purpose for which it was designed. But apart from that, they had profaned the, period, the, the temple over an extended period of time. And you get to the book of Malachi and God's kind of fed up with it. And they're half-heartedly bringing sacrifices. And God says to the nation through Malachi, I wish there was one prophet. In Malachi chapter 1, he says, I wish there was one prophet who would be bold enough to just shut it down. I wish somebody would come and just shut the gates. I'd rather have no sacrifice than to have sacrifice from somebody who doesn't really love me. It's a good reminder to us that it's not just about what we do. It's why we do what we do that matters to God. It's the heart of our actions that matters to God. But God says there, I wish there was one person. I wish there was one priest with the boldness and enough backbone to come in here and say, we're done. No more. Who is that great high priest who comes into the temple and shuts it down? We see him right here in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus comes into the temple, and what is he doing? He is putting an end to Old Testament worship. Christ is coming, and he shuts it down. And there's going to be a new temple. In fact, in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, you'll remember Jesus in that episode where he cleanses the temple 
uh, they ask him, the religious leaders, where do you get the authority to do these kinds of things? Where do you get off doing this kind of stuff? And they said, give us a sign. And you remember what Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Tear down this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a new temple of God. And what is the new temple of God? It is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And who is the body of Jesus Christ? It is us, the church. And listen to me. As the temple of God, both individually and corporately as Christ's body, God's heart and mission has not changed. Just as it was with the old, in the Old Testament with Israel, that I just want to bless these people as they follow me so that my name will be known among the earth and all the nations of the world will be drawn to me. God's heart hasn't changed. Remember in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of who? All the nations. Listen to me this morning. God's heart hasn't changed. He still desires a group of people who will trust him and who will take him at his word and who will join him in his mission, who will follow him so that his way may be known upon all the earth. And the gravest mistake that we could ever make as God's people is to forget that we exist primarily for the people outside these walls. And that whatever else we do, we cannot and we must not miss the evangelistic heart of Christ for the nations. If we are more interested in our own personal preferences, in our own personal gain, than we are for the lost world around us, we have missed the heart of God and we should expect no less of God's judgment and wrath. This is serious business. If you can't tell from the heart of Jesus in this passage that this is serious business, then something's wrong with you. Our heart, our passion must be the same as the Father's who gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our passion and our heart must be the same as Christ who didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many who came to seek and to save that which is lost who left the 99 and went after the one and most importantly leaves the glory of God the Father to die on a cross for the salvation of lost sinners like you and me. And God help us as a church if we ever become more interested and passionate about our own personal gains and our own pocketbooks than we are the purpose of God in reaching those who are lost and don't know Jesus. At the foundation of everything we do must be God's heart and passion for the lost sinner. The second point that we see in this is that the wrath of Christ stems not just from missing the heart of God for the nations, but because they were missing his power and prayer. There's no way that you can read this text and not see an emphasis upon prayer, that what God really desired from his people was not more sacrifices, but a true heartfelt worship with him and total dependence upon him in prayer. Isn't it interesting that here Jesus doesn't quote from the Old Testament and say, my house shall be called a house of sacrifice. Doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, my house shall be called a house of singing. Doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, my house shall be called even a house of preaching. But he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That one of the most identifiable marks of God's people, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, is that when my people gather, they pray. 
Because they know that in this evangelistic heart of God, as we seek to be on mission with God, there's no way we can accomplish it apart from God's divine enablement that we find through prayer. That these people were missing the heart of God for the nations in evangelism, but they were also missing his power through prayer. I mean, you come to this point in the nation of Israel, and they are a shadow of their former selves. They are a weak nation, controlled. Can you imagine this? The nation of Israel, God's people, completely controlled by a pagan nation, the Romans. Much of the nation was deported. And remember, Israel never lost a battle for lack of resources. They never lost a battle because they didn't have enough weapons. They never lost a battle because they never had a good enough military. They never lost a battle for lack of money. They only lost when they were not faithful to God and dependent upon Him in prayer. And Christ here is angered at the sight of this decimated nation because they've neglected his purpose and they have neglected his power in prayer. That this place that was intended to be a place of communion with God and fellowship with God, they lost the power of God because they lost dependence upon him in prayer. They were busy, make no mistake about it, doing a whole lot of stuff, but no prayer. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In fact, in verses 20 and 22, the disciples, they ask about the fig tree. And Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, it'll happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, this is not saying that you can ask whatever you want and you'll get it. It's in the context of mission. It's interesting, in Mark's gospel, uh, they ask about the fig tree. Why did this fig tree wither so quickly? And you know what Jesus responds? He says, have faith in God. Isn't that an odd response? Why did the fig tree wither? Have faith in God. What is Jesus doing, even here? If you believe in me, what is Jesus doing? I think Jesus is doing, is he's saying, listen, this fig tree is a picture of what happens when you don't depend upon me, when you're not obedient to my mission, you lose my power, and there's only condemnation and judgment. And he's saying to the church, the leadership of the church, right here in the apostles, not you. You trust me. You have faith in me. You seek to be a part of my mission, and you depend upon me in prayer, And nothing will be impossible for you. And nothing can stand in your way as you seek to fulfill my mission. In fact, this reference to this mountain moved and cast in the sea. It's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, the nation of Israel, Zerubbabel, is leading them to rebuild the temple. And there's this great opposition against them. It's the, the Persian nation. And the, Persian, the nation of Persia was, was um, illustrated by a mountain. God calls them a mountain. And so this opposition to the rebuilding and the purpose of God, God says to them, if you will trust in me, that mountain of the Persian Empire, it'll become a plain. It'll be no problem for me. I can take it right out of the way if you'll just trust in me. And for you and I in the mission of God, as we seek to have his heart for the nations, to declare the gospel to the world and to see all people drawn into fellowship with him, as we seek to be a part of that mission, listen, as we depend upon God, there's no opposition that can stop us. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his people when they depend upon Christ in prayer. You trust me. You know, no church 
No church has ever died for lack of money. No church has ever died because of lack of people. We'll blame it on those things. But listen to me. Churches die when they miss the purpose of God in missions and when they stop relying upon him in total and desperate prayer. And this is not just corporately applying to you and I as the church, but I believe it applies to you and I individually as well. There's many references in the, in the New Testament we, where we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And there's a lot of defeated Christians. A lot of depressed, discouraged, defeated Christians. And if you find yourself in that place this morning, I have two questions for you. Are you participating in the purpose of God in evangelism and missions? Listen to me. You set your heart to be on mission with God and declare his glory to those who are around you and don't know him. And listen, you will see the good hand of favor on your life, the likes of which you have never known before. God has not promised to bless our plans, but he has declared that he will bless his. And inasmuch as we as a church seek to be a part of his purposes, we will know his good hand of favor. And as you seek to be a part of his mission, you'll know his good hand. Is your heart his heart today? And secondly, are you desperately dependent upon God in prayer? When was the last time you got on your knees and you pleaded with God to demonstrate his power in your life. You know, you want a good picture of this? Look at the, 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 the church in the book of Acts. They were a people who were participating in the mission of God. And they were a people, they prayed all the time. They prayed when they were persecuted. They prayed, the, the, the start of the church occurred out of a 10-day prayer meeting. We can't get people to show up for an hour worth of prayer. They prayed for 10 days straight. And what happened? The power of God fell. Peter preached and proclaimed the word of God. And 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. Listen, there is an unlimited amount of power that is available to us as we seek to fulfill God's mission. But we tap into it through prayer. Are you praying? Or are you just going through the motions of life relying upon your own energy? We want to be a part of God's mission. And we want to see his glory demonstrated in our church. And if we do, we better be a people who pray, both individually and corporately. How are you doing today? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has a heart for the nations. That you're a God who has a heart for those who do not, do not know you. In fact, that's the reason that you sent your son. For God so loved the world. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, never trusted in you, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they'd see the depth of their own sin. They'd see the glory of their Savior Jesus who died on a cross for them. And they would run to you. They'd bend the knee and they'd know your salvation, know your grace and forgiveness and mercy. 
God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would all do a self-evaluation today. Do we have your heart for the lost? Or is our life more consumed with our own plans and our own business? God, it could be that we're in danger of committing the same sins as these people did. There's no way we'll ever really know your good hand of favor when our life is simply consumed with our own self-interest. But there is a glory. There is a joy. There is a peace. There is a power that comes in setting our hand to your plow, to engaging in your mission and declaring your hope and your salvation to a lost and dying world. Your heart has not changed, God. Help us as your people to participate in your mission. And as we do, Lord, help us to be a people of prayer. God, forgive us in our pride, in our own self-reliance, thinking that we can do it on our own. God, I pray that we would be a people that seek your power every moment of every day, to be a people who pray without ceasing so that your power might be displayed in your people and your kingdom might grow for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to pray with you, love to talk with you about what it means to know Christ. Uh, maybe you're here this morning, you'd just like to pray with one of these pastors about something else in your life. Maybe you want to respond for, for some other reason. This is your time. Know this today. You will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.